Are you numb to it? Are you numb to it yet? Two mass shootings, two two mass killers, really just a few days apart from each other, although hundreds of miles apart from each other physically. One of them happened right here uh, in the Atlanta area, not not terribly far from where I live and the place that I love and call home. What's dominated the news about the Atlanta spa killings is the fact that he was a a Christian, specifically a Southern Baptist uh, conservative-ish type Christian. And of course, that's caused many Christians to do some soul searching and some uh, self-criticism, so to speak. And it's caused, of course, non-Christians to do a lot of finger pointing and name calling and even pitted Christians against Christians. But but what really has has caused me to pay attention in ways that perhaps I'd grown numb to is that it happened so close to home. In in another little piece of news that people really won't be talking about nationally, but uh, local to Atlanta, not long after the spa shootings, that tragic event, there was a, a senseless shooting in the Cumberland Mall parking lot, which is a very nice mall. Um, my family and I have been there on, oh, dozens and dozens of occasions. Fortunately, no one was killed in that shooting, but it just kind of wakes you up to the reality that we live in a culture where evil is real, it's manifested, it's violent. And if we're not careful, we can remove ourselves so far from evil that we forget that evil exists. And when we hear news cycle after news cycle after news cycle, we can just tune it out or grow numb to it. Or it's almost like we feel like it's happening on another planet somewhere, but it would never invade our planet. It'll never happen to me or where I live. But but evil is real. Mass killers and mass killings force us to face the questions of evil, the difficult questions of evil, like who created evil? What is evil? Is evil something that we can quantify? And is it only evil if it's senseless killing, or can other things be evil? These are questions that the church needs to face. I know they're not happy questions. I know that they're somber questions, but we do need to talk about them, and we do need to face it and help our culture understand the nature of evil. And so we'll be back. That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm a little disjointed. My thoughts are all over the place with it. Got something new. Got a new article today on this very topic at RyanAFrench.com called Mass Killings and the Question of Evil. So hang in there. We'll be back in 60 seconds. shootings have rocked the nation in the past month alone. Really, the first one went a little unnoticed in Boulder, Colorado at a grocery store. Didn't receive nearly the the national conversation that the Atlanta spa shootings have garnered. 
but really uh, it's been jolting. And as I've already mentioned, one of them occurred right here in the Atlanta area. And um, I'm not here to write or talk about this from a news perspective. I'm not trying to give details or sensationalize the killings. Uh, Understandably, America always wants details, any details that might clarify the reasons behind a shooter's actions. You know, why would someone do this? Why, why could, how could someone uh, just randomly shoot people they don't know or, or people they barely know, as in the case with, with the Atlanta spa shootings. Now I, I will give this one detail because it's important in terms of what we'll talk about a little later on. And that is the, the spa shooter was a, a fairly conservative Southern Baptist who was a part of the purity culture and he claimed to have a sex addiction. So he was visiting when they say spas, um, that's really just a kind way of saying he was going to these, uh, very, very seedy, uh, massage places that more than massages were happening. And he was, uh, he was evidently addicted to this. He frequented them and he dealt with, uh, shame and, um, conviction and anger and who knows what else was swirling around. We can't possibly know at this point what all was happening in his mind. Uh, but this definitely played a role. So these weren't complete strangers in, in every situation. But just knowing a killer's motivations, regardless of what they are, it doesn't even matter. It's not going to bring any comfort to people who've lost a loved one in a senseless killing. It's just not going to. And it really won't bring us as a nation any any comfort either. You know, the watching world does crave a level of understanding going forward. And one thing is sure, that nothing we discover is going to satisfy anything. By assessing motives, we, we want to find a cure, an inoculation from individual acts of evil. We want to find a way to stop evil before it occurs. And new laws, of course, this is always, we politicize everything now. So the first conversation is always about gun laws. But new laws may or may not make certain types of despicable inclinations more challenging to accomplish. Laws do nothing to address the pervasive evil contained within the human heart. You know, consequences, legal and otherwise, might intimidate people into submission, but threatened social consequences are are only preemptively impactful up to a certain point. Obviously, in the situation of, of a suicide bomber, they can't be intimidated by loss of life over their actions. We can't intimidate them into giving up their suicidal rage. They give their lives willingly in the service of evil. Neither can a suicidal killer with hatred in his heart be stopped by any kind of punishments or punitive measures. A homicidal heart will find a way to commit murder regardless of the actions civil society takes. Don't misunderstand me. We should take preventative measures when and where possible in the same way that it would be ludicrous for society to say 
that because we can't completely stop rapes from happening, we shouldn't make every effort humanly possible to prevent and punish rape. That same mindset goes for murder, whether it's mass murder or homicide in general. Just because we can't stop all evil from happening doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to stop as much of it as we possibly can. Of course we do. Of course we do. Here in the Atlanta area, again, this is perhaps why this is swirling around in my mind so much. Another place of business, well-known in Atlanta, that I've been to with my family many times, Atlantic Station. It's a it's a nice shopping area, outdoor shopping area. A great place. In fact, uh, we took family pictures there not too long ago. Beautiful spot. A man walked into the Publix grocery store, and he had, uh, if I understand right, a couple rifles and a handgun, went into the bathroom. Fortunately, an employee saw him going in and alerted a police officer, and they went in and arrested him before he was able to do anything. Thank God. Mass killings are a relatively new social manifestation of evil. Every society from the beginning of time, going all the way back to the biblical account of Genesis, has suffered the scourge of violence and homicidal hatred. You can go back to Cain and Abel. Homicide is there at the very first book of the Bible. But the particularly heinous rise of senseless mass murder is a distinctively modern problem. Since the dawn of civilization, governments and power-hungry tyrants have slaughtered more innocents than historians can count. Think of Pol Pot and think of all that Marxism and communism, all of the people, Nazism and fascism, millions and millions of people murdered by governments. But in the situation of otherwise average individuals randomly killing innocent people they don't know or barely know on a mass level is terrifyingly unique. The level of hatred required for this nightmarish breed of viciousness and violence defies comprehension. Modern psychology views the origin of evil as a biological byproduct rather than an outside force that impacts us biologically. And so because of that, Modern psychology only addresses the symptoms, and it remains incapable of correctly diagnosing the primary causes, the disease. Evil is evil, and and while individuals are responsible for their own actions, evil doesn't originate in the human psyche. It's always easy to relegate every depraved human action down to mental illness or madness. This is the trend in society today. We assume that every mass killer is mentally ill. We assume every heinous crime that we hear about in the news is, is due to mental illness. But the reality is, I think we're blurring the lines between evil, pure evil, and mental illness at times. While, now let me clarify, mental illness is undoubtedly a real problem. But not all or even most mentally ill individuals commit horrific crimes. Just calling a killer mentally ill doesn't explain away their actions. And it doesn't accurately address why one mentally ill person kills and another one doesn't. 
we instinctively want to categorize evil as insanity because it's so emotionally painful to imagine a sane person methodically killing dozens of people he's never even met. Mass shootings push the fallen nature of humankind out from the shadows into the harsh light of day. The naked evil and wicked capacity of the human heart causes us to blink and squint. We can't bear it. We can't look directly at it without excruciating pain. It's like trying to look directly into the sun. It's not that evil things aren't happening all around us every day. They are. Unspeakable things happen in your neighborhood every day and you don't know about it. We just fail or refuse to notice them, or it stays hidden in the night, in the shadows. Like the prophets of old, people who do notice and comment are often labeled depressing, downers, boorish, alarmists, or some other condescending pejorative. But large-scale, in-your-face evil can't be ignored, can't be denied, it can't be minimized. So we hunger for the elusive why behind the madness. Why? Why would someone shoot? Why would someone kill? Why would someone do this? Some point the finger of blame at God in these circumstances. But ultimately, evil is satanic in origin and embedded in the human condition. Therefore, human methodologies alone, no matter how well-intentioned, will never eradicate evil from the human heart. Because the fallen nature of humankind is so vulnerable and consistently capable of awful behavior, Jesus instructed us to pray this. He said, do it this way, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He said to pray that prayer daily. I've often marveled at those who claim that God is not good while simultaneously claiming that humans are intrinsically good. I'm not sure you can read about events like mass shootings and believe in the innate goodness of humanity. Facing the depravity of the human condition head on, it, it is depressing, I know, and it's hard to grasp. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the prophet Jeremiah said. Uh, the great theologian and preacher of his day, C.H. Spurgeon, wrote, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic Ocean, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. He said, the venom of sin is in the very fountain of our being. It has poisoned our heart. It is in the very marrow of our bones. And it's as natural to us as anything that belongs to us. We inherited that wicked, sinful nature from the lineage of Adam. You can't truly fathom the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel until you grasp the badness, the depravity of the human condition. The good news begins with bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all capable of pure evil. Thankfully, the gospel story begins with condemnation but ends with redemption. In the weeks and months ahead, I've decided to write, podcast, preach, and teach about the gospel. And if you're listening to this today and you feel hopeless, please know there's hope. If you're, if you're listening and, and you know someone else who feels hopeless, tell them about Jesus. Tell them the bad news, but then take them to the good news. Tell them how God wants to forgive their sin and fill them with this spirit. Tell them how the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can dwell in them 
and raise them above hopelessness, temptation, and sin. We can push back against the darkness by reaching one heart at a time with the truth of the gospel. It's the only hope for the human condition. Otherwise, the baser parts of our society will continue to bubble up while we pretend that evil isn't real. Hey, I know commercial breaks are frustrating, but I do want to pause and let you know you can financially support this apostolic Pentecostal programming by giving as little as 99 cents a month. You can give $4.99 a month or even as much as $9.99 per month by going to www.anchor.fm forward slash apostolic voice forward slash support. Also, please consider giving this podcast five stars and a quick review on iTunes. It really helps us out in the search engines people use to find podcasts when you give us a like and a review. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for your support. God bless. Where did evil come from? What is evil? Did God create evil? How can God be good if he created evil? I remember asking my dad these questions when I was a kid, and oh my goodness, the look on his face. But these are real questions. Mass killings, mass shootings. When we come face to face with raw evil, we start asking ourselves these questions. Some people argue that man's free will, the fact that God gave us the freedom, is the source of evil. So we, because God gave us free will, now we're free to be evil. But that begs the question, didn't God create free will? So then by extension, God at least enabled evil, we would say. And doesn't that make him the ultimate source of evil? Doesn't that make him responsible for our sins? Is that why the Lord says in Isaiah 45 and 7, I make peace and create evil? If God isn't the source of evil, what can the Bible possibly mean when it tells us that an evil spirit from God came upon King Saul? That's 1 Samuel 18.10. Wow, these are are big life questions. To begin with, though, it's misleading to think of evil as a thing. I'm going to say that again. It's misleading to think of evil as a thing. Evil isn't a substance. Evil isn't something that has a traceable source. Biblically speaking, evil is an aspect of relationship. You know, when we ask questions like, did God create evil? The real issue isn't how could God create evil? It's how could God create another self separate from and independent of his own self? This is the real miracle of creation, especially the creation of mankind. Man had to be an entity entirely separate from God. He had to be a creature with a genuine will of his own. Otherwise, 
There wouldn't be any such thing as relationship or love if we're just robots, if we're just programmed creatures that are designed and programmed and forced to worship and love God. The possibility of genuine love between men and God would not be possible. Genuine love between God and man springs directly out of man's freedom to choose. But this possibility also has an element of risk. It includes the potential for pain, just like love in any human relationship. Whenever you open yourself to real love, you're opening yourself up to the possibility of pain, real pain too, because you can't know real pain until you've known real love. Through the exercise or the use of our free will, humanity has broken its relationship with God. That's what evil is all about. When Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they rebelled in the garden, they broke that relationship. So let's look at Isaiah 45, 7. Let's take a closer look at this passage uh, where God says, I make peace and create evil. There are two different words used for evil in the Old Testament. First, there is evil in the sense of calamity, disaster, misfortune, you know, think tornado or something like that, or hardship, think famine, financial hardship. In other words, those those aspects of existence in this world that we consider bad because they hurt us or inconvenience us in some way. We That's the Hebrew use of that word Hebrew, uh, uh, evil. The Hebrew word for this type of evil is ra'ah, and it has to be distinguished from the second Hebrew word for evil, which is rasha, wickedness or evil in the moral sense, what we typically mean in English when we use the word evil. So when the Lord says in the King James Version, I make peace and create evil, the Hebrew word used is ra'ah. The New King James Version makes it explicit with the translation. It says, I make peace and create calamity. The same word is used in Lamentations 3.38, where the prophet Jeremiah declares that both evil and good proceed out of the mouth of the Most High. He doesn't mean evil in the sense of moral evil. He means evil in the sense of calamity. Now, to contrast that, the Bible never attributes the creation of rasha, or moral wickedness, evil, to God. In fact, it does the opposite. It tells us over and over again that God alone is good. It says that all the works of his hands are, are just and right. The Bible says he's the light. John said uh, there's no darkness in him at all. If he creates raha or calamity, it's always for a good and righteous purpose within the all-embracing overarching scheme of his eternal and sovereign plan. In other words, God works all things together for our good. He even uses pain to bring us into a better place. Think of Joseph. He had to go into a pit. He had to go into slavery. He had to go to prison. He had to be lied about before he could ultimately ascend into the palace. All of that was God's plan all along. None of that happened separately from God. God wasn't disengaged from that process. No, the hand of God was leading Joseph even when Joseph didn't fully understand it or even kind of understand it. God was leading Joseph. So God works all things together. Our trials, our troubles, our calamities, 
He works those things together for good to those. Now, here's the key word to those who love him. Romans 8, 28. God might have all kinds of reasons for weaving ra'ah or hardships, evil, difficulties, calamities into the fabric of our lives, into the fabric, the tapestry of the human experience. But he is not and cannot be the author of rasha, of evil. So far, so far, so good. I hope you're still there with me. Now, let's let's go on and let's continue this question. You know, Samuel 18.10 says that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. But it can't possibly mean that God is the source of wickedness or sin. So what is this verse saying? The Hebrew text says that Ruach, Elohim, Raha, came upon Saul. Ruach, Elohim is the phrase normally used in the Old Testament to signify the Holy Spirit. You could see Genesis 1-2 for the word evil here is Raha, unfortunate, disastrous, hurtful. The New King James Version translates it this way. A distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. It might also be translated, the spirit of God came upon Saul in a distressing or troubling way. Why would the spirit of God come upon Saul in a distressing way? And I think the answer should be obvious. Saul was rebellious. Saul was backslidden. He was in a profound inner conflict. He was visiting a witch. He was wrestling with the Lord with his own bitterness and resentment towards David. And in the middle of this crisis, the Spirit of God was prodding him, pricking him, stirring him up, and driving him to deal with his emotions and his misguided quest for personal vengeance and significance. And his response was unfortunate. Instead of yielding to the convicting influence of the Spirit, Saul snapped under the pressure and gave vent to his hatred. God does this often with people. He he allows a troubling spirit. We sometimes pray this way. I pray for backsliders this way. I'll say, Lord, uh, don't let them rest. Don't let them rest until they until they face their sin. Until they until they start making their way back home to, to your house. Uh, and God will do that. God will often put a, a troubling spirit. He'll trouble them, and that troubling comes from God himself. It might be fair to say that God pushed Saul to this point. You know, the Bible affirms that, you know, he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But it's it's equally clear that Saul, like Pharaoh, was responsible and accountable for his own reaction to the situation. And so here lies yet another illustration of the mysterious relationship between human free will and the sovereignty of God. And I think it lies in our understanding of evil. I think that we misunderstand what evil is. And so I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I'm going to give you an illustration that I think best sums it up for me personally. And I hope, I sincerely hope that it's helpful for you. In science, darkness, and I mean real darkness, pitch black darkness, where there is zero light. It's actually rare for people today to experience that kind of pitch darkness, especially because we have so many devices lighting up rooms and things like that, even at nighttime. But I'm talking about genuine darkness, pitch black darkness is not scientifically quantifiable because darkness is not actually a thing. Light is, light is quantifiable because light has a source. Light has a source. And so, We can measure light. 
we can we can measure the speed of light, we can measure the intensity of light because we can go to the source and we can follow it, we can track it. Light is quantifiable. And so it is with evil and righteousness, or we might say the word goodness. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is the absence of love. And since God is the source of love and goodness, God is the source of all good things, evil is simply the absence of God, the absence of all of the good things of God. If you really want to break it down philosophically, evil is not actually a thing. Evil is just the absence of a thing. For example, when you turn a light on in a room, uh, the darkness is, is, even though it seems like something to us, darkness is not actually a thing. But when you turn the light on, this is why in Scripture over and over again, God uses the illustration of light and darkness, light and darkness. Even in the beginning in creation, the scripture said there was there was a void. It was dark. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Everything was void. And, and then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light was created. Darkness was not created. God never said, let there be void. Let there be darkness. No, it was already there. Why? Because nothingness was there. God spoke into darkness or nothingness. He created light. And what did light do? Light did exactly what God designed it to do. It pushed the darkness out. God will push evil out if we allow him to. But if we remove God from our lives, now evil fills the void. This is why we have mass shootings. This is why we have rape and hatred and bitterness and racism and jealousy and all kinds of greed and things that we can't even talk about here today, immorality of all kinds. Why? Why? Because there's an absence of God in our culture that is producing evil, and the evil is usually hidden in some way, but it manifests itself in all of these places, and it turns into something that cannot be denied. Light pushes the darkness out. That's why Jesus said we're a city on a hill. The church is like a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. I've often thought it, it's not even that um, we shouldn't hide our light. A lot of people quote that scripture, and and they take it to mean don't hide your light. You know, you need to be seen. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, if you're truly a city shining on a hill, you can't hide even if you want to. And so if you're a child of God, you can't hide if you want to hide because you're going to shine. You're going to be noticeable. Your holiness, your inward and your outward holiness is going to shine before all men. And you're like a city on a hill. And, and the goodness that flows from you pushes the darkness all around you and keeps it at bay. This is why the church is the only thing standing between the great judgment and wrath of God. While the church is here, we're pushing the darkness. But when this church is raptured and seven years of tribulation come, it's going to be unthinkable, unspeakable, absolutely unbelievable. I don't want to be here for that. I know you don't either. And so my prayer is that we would reach as many people as we can with the light before it's too late.
I want to close the program out today talking about an article that I read about the Atlanta massacre and this recent shooting here uh, in my hometown. The article is by David French at The Dispatch. You can go to French Press, thedispatch.com. It's the number one article uh, on the site right now, and it's called Why the Atlanta Massacre Triggered a Conversation About Purity Culture. Now, full disclosure, David French is not related to me at all in any way, and I typically really enjoy David French's writing. He's a Christian. He writes about politics sometimes, but culture typically, and usually I I like the way he thinks. And 90% of this article to me is very good. I enjoyed it. Uh, He talked about the shooting itself and how it's been used as, as a political posturing tool. That's, of course, sad. He talked about the uh, the tragedy of Asian women that were murdered and and how horrible that is to the Asian culture. And, and I thought that was very good. And then he talked about the issue of sex addiction because this young man who will remain nameless on this program considered himself to be a sex addict. That's why he was going to these massage places in the first place. Uh, it, it doesn't seem, at least from what I can tell, it doesn't seem like there was any kind of racial component uh, in the killing. We don't actually know that. It's, for one thing, you don't just take a killer's word uh, for what his motives are. Oftentimes, a, an evil person will reveal their true motives. Um, and so he goes through this. He talks about the shooter, and then he talks about the fact that uh, the media latched on to the fact that this man was a Christian, and he was a part of the evangelical purity culture. Now, if you don't know what the evangelical purity culture is, uh, let me give you just kind of a quick, and of course, David French, he goes through a long, long list of the evangelical purity culture. He talks about some of his run-ins with it and how he'd sort of been a part of it, and, and that's interesting. It's good to see. But for those of you that may not know, purity culture kind of hit hard in the late 80s and 90s and maybe a little bit into the 2000s. When I was young, I remember being a teenager and there was a book that came out called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I'm trying to think of the guy's name who wrote it. Anyway, recently, a few years ago, he came out, divorced his wife, became an atheist, lost his mind, went crazy. And David French kind of goes through a list of popular writers, evangelical writers, preachers, teachers, personalities who were big uh, drivers of the purity culture who eventually went on to be caught in sexual sin and things of that nature, which I think is perhaps a little misleading of David French because uh, you can point to any group of people who have a philosophy that you disagree with, and you can find people who are hypocrites in that philosophy. So, for example, I might can say, I don't believe in global warming because I see Al Gore's house, and Al Gore uh, flies in jet planes, and he has a house that uh, sucks millions and millions of of electrical impulses into his own home, and he has a massive carbon footprint. So because he's a hypocrite, global warming can't be true. Now, that would be wrong. Now, I don't believe in global warming, not in the sense that many people try to convince us of anyway. But just because Al Gore is a hypocrite doesn't mean global warming isn't true. In the same way that just because a preacher can be caught in sin 
doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true. It just means that person is a hypocrite. So David French kind of gleefully goes through and mentions some men who were a big part of the purity culture that were hypocrites. The purity culture basically went like this. It was a good thing that maybe got a little carried away. Uh, it was anti-sex before marriage, which is a biblical principle and commendable for them to do. But then they started doing away with words like dating. So you didn't date, you courted, uh, you didn't hold hands before marriage. In some situations, you, you weren't allowed to uh, have any physical touch before marriage at all. And also, in some aspects of the purity culture, there was holiness principles in terms of dress standards for men, but especially for women. And uh, they encouraged women to dress modestly and avoid eye traps, what they called eye traps. David French mentions this. He even gives a little picture illustration of what eye traps were according to purity culture. And here's where things start going off the rails for me a little bit. Josh Harris was the one who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. 1990, Josh Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Sold more than a million copies. And it urged Christian young people to abandon dating entirely. So I remember this. I was I was around that. I remember it swirling around in the apostolic movement. Should we be uh, dating? Should we be courting? How should all of this work? And and I even agree with the, some of the criticisms that that uh, David French had against the purity culture, uh, because he, as as best I can tell, David French is against sexual sin, and he wants us to be sexually pure and physically pure. Uh, but then he starts to say things like this. He said, women bore in the purity movement a special burden to protect young men from lust and later satisfy their husband's desires. And then he goes on and he talks about how it's important to emphasize how much the extreme teachings were contrary to the gospel. And by contrary to the gospel, I don't mean that the orthodox sexual ethic is contrary to God's plan or that sexual sin can't be very serious indeed. I'm with him here. I'm with him here. I agree with him. Instead, I'm referring to the perverted theology of the abusive purity movement. And then he says a few things. Now, here's where, here's where it kind of starts getting strange. Placing responsibility for male purity on women harms women. It creates an impossible burden. So far, I'm still kind of with him. You cannot oppress women enough to protect men from themselves. You can ban porn, ban explicit TV and movies of all types, put women in long dresses, prohibit makeup, and require courtship contracts, and you still will not solve the problem of sin. In fact, Placing such burdens on women does not make the church more Christian. It instead connects the church to millennia of oppressive practices across the world and across faiths that have put women in a position of covered bondage, all for the sake of avoiding the lustful male gaze. Now, here is where we start to part ways a little bit, because there, there's a certain insidious wording here that I find discomforting. Because in theory, I agree with what he's saying. It is true. And this is, this is a debate, this is a topic that apostolics need to be having in public, not just quietly. We need to be talking about these things. It is true that a man is responsible to protect his own eyes. That is true. And it's also true that you can ban 
all kinds of things. You can you can ban explicit literature and explicit things on devices, and and you cannot ban sin and lust out of a man's heart. That's true. Men have to deal with that themselves. It is a man's responsibility to be pure before God and have a pure mind, have pure actions and a pure heart. However, to go the opposite direction and say that women have no responsibility, especially godly women, have no responsibility to be modest, to be holy, and to do what they can to guard men, to protect their own virtue, to protect their own to protect their own value and worth, to say that it's not important for Christian women to have some role in this process, I think is extreme. I think it's extreme. For example, I would need to ask someone like David French, but we could ask anyone. If if it's no one's responsibility except the man's, then why couldn't people just be completely naked? Why would there be any ban? Why would there be why would there be any level of inappropriateness to anything if we're all just responsible for just doing the right thing and that visual elements have nothing to do with anything? Denying the visual element of lust and how it affects men and women differently is a denial of basic human biology, and it's very dangerous. Yes, people instinctively understand that you know, you have to put some level of clothes on because otherwise it's inappropriate. Unfortunately, our culture has become so comfortable with nudity and modesty. Our culture has no biblical understanding of what God considers to be nudity and immodesty and nakedness, to use a King James word. Our culture has no understanding, and so we have pushed the line, pushed the line, pushed the line to where now, if you tell women they can't wear skin-tight yoga pants, somehow you're oppressing them and putting them in bondage. If you tell men that they need to act like men and not women, you're oppressing men and putting them in bondage. This is the danger of that kind of radical thinking. Yes, men are responsible for their own eyeballs. Yes, men are responsible for their own actions. And men need to guard themselves, and they have to. Godly men have to in this culture because the vast majority of women are not going to be modest. Men, we have to guard our eyes. We have to guard our minds. But women, godly women, are not in bondage just because they choose to be dignified and modest and separated in the sense that they are distinct from masculinity. Women who dress in a feminine fashion and distinguish themselves as women, are obedient to the Word of God, and they are fulfilling things that are important for society. If everyone would be obedient to the Word of God, we would have a lot less sexual problems in our culture, and a lot of other problems would go away as well. And so I fundamentally disagree with the idea that just because women might have some kind of responsibility to dress modestly that somehow we are banning them or somehow hurting them. By the way, I'll close with this. I think men have an obligation to dress modestly as well, and men need to be careful also. I think it goes across the board, but God does care, and I hope you'll care too. God bless you. Thank you for listening.
just calling a killer mentally ill doesn't explain away their actions and it doesn't substantively and it doesn't substantively and it doesn't substantively substantively and it doesn't accurately address why one mentally ill person kills and another one doesn't 